Hey, Pooches. What up, what up? How's it going? Good. How you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Typical start to the week. So kind of chaotic, but but taking it day by day. Came back from a lot of rest this weekend, so I'm happy. How's am, everything going uh, on your end? I'm back from Istanbul, Ooh. where I ate about two to three pounds of grilled meat per day. <laughs> um it was fun it was it was cold it was it was pretty cold and the last uh two days we got a bit of snow which was fun oh. and also not fun because we thought they would cancel our uh our flight but uh no it, it, it was fun i liked it um nice. a lot of cats right oh Hopefully. yeah plenty plenty of cats a lot of uh you know snoot boops here and there uh, as is required by local law and tradition Yes. But exactly. speaking of cat, by the way, we have a special guest for this podcast, which is Mimi, uh, our cat. So I couldn't. Um, so, uh, okay. For, for those who don't know, our cat actually requires like a human escort to take her to where she usually spends the night. Cause she's like, it's I don't know true. what she's afraid of, but she just won't go by herself unless somebody takes her. And I have not had the time to take her, which means she's still in the office where I'm recording this right now. And I really hope she doesn't get noisy uh, halfway through the recording. Um, otherwise I'm just going to have to, uh, you know, mute out the meows from the, uh, uh, you know, the post recording process. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay. I, I still remember like, um, she, she used to take like solely the elevator exclusively to yeah. get her place to sleep. Right. Because it was three flights of, of stairs. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, if you scale it up for her size, it's roughly, you know, you're asking her to basically go up the stairs of the Statue of Liberty two to three times True. before she gets to where she goes to sleep. So by the time she gets to the top, she does her Rocky thing, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. No, I think she, she's probably forgotten me now. She, she probably won't like recognize my voice or anything. I just yeah. need to show up with food for her to like me again, maybe. I mean, you know, I got back after what eight days away, and she couldn't give a shit less. Like, you know, this guy. <laughs> oh God! Now I have to uh, beg a little louder in yeah. order to get more food. But yeah, cutie. I like it. I've, the, the only the only two things that have been keeping me going have been, um, first of all, Brady being back. That's very very exciting. As of what yesterday? Yeah, that was weird. That's very weird. Yeah, because I remember I saw a video. So he, the guy's in London right now, and he went to a Manchester United game. Uh-huh. And there was like a brief discussion he had with Cristiano Ronaldo after the game, where Cristiano asked him, "Like, so you're done? Like, are you, are you finished with football?" And he went, "Ah, no, I don't know. I was thinking about it still, and all that." The next day, he announces he's back. So it's very. very I, I heard it was like a text exchange with LeBron James, and LeBron was saying that, like, you know, we're the best at what we do, and that kind of a thing. Well, they're not wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, but oh, by the way, like yeah. the the mother of all rug pulls, like forget all the NFT stuff was uh, was the guy who bought his final uh, game ball or the the ball used for the final pass or whatever for oh, like shit, half a million right. dollars, only for him to hear that the guy's coming back and the ball is just whatever <laughs> worthless. I think he's like worthless right now. <laughs> well, maybe. It's it's like I'd say it's worth like a tenth of what it normally is because it is a it is still a Tom Brady touchdown ball, yeah. But you know, not the last one, which is which is what probably gave it that price. Um, but yeah, just exciting well, yeah. stuff in sports generally. I think there, there's there's that there's 
the MLB lockout finally being over and now spring training is going to start in I think three days and like opening days, a couple of days, like 20, 20 days away ish. So finally, you know, that's, that's honestly one of the things I I really miss about living in the States. Like I love going to, to games. Like me and you have been to more games than we could ever care to count. Literally like since 2006, maybe is when we started going to the Red Sox games. And we've uh-huh. been to like, I, I don't, I mean, it's, a, it's probably, it's in the hundreds. Probably like yeah. countless games, honestly. Between the Red Sox and we never went to anything in New York, right? Actually, we didn't go to anything else on the, on the East coast. It was just the Red Sox. So we, we did go, I don't know if you were with me, but we did, I think it was me and uh, like we, well, for the sake of the podcast, I'm going to say our, our, our dad, but <laughs> um, we went to um, a Mets game. Um, I've never been to a Yankees game. I really want to go to one there. Yeah. I, I've never been to a Yankees game or, or a Mets game. All the games I went yeah. to, because I went to college uh, on the West coast and I lived for a little while on the West coast before going East on the East in Boston, it was just Red Sox all the time. Oh, yeah. um, obviously I, I went to like, you know, Celtics and Patriots and Bruins and all that, but um, uh-huh. on the West coast, the, I went to all the ballparks. I went to, well, San Diego Padres, was one of my favorites because they allowed you Petco to walk Park's into the Petco. yeah Petco Park. You could walk into the park with whatever you wanted, whatever food, whatever anything, just no alcohol, wow. but whatever else, whatever you wanted. And I remember I, like I would that. get there was this place, this Iranian place, like walking distance from the stadium, called uh-huh. uh, Darbent, and I had some of the best cup oh. <laughs> I'd ever had. So I would be I sitting behind home plate because home plate, by the way, at the Padres was like ten dollars. It was ridiculous. It was free. <laughs> So I'd be sitting behind the home plate and I would have, uh, you know, as this giant dish of kebab in my lap. And I'm pretty sure that the umpire was probably drooling every now and then when he got a whiff of it. I was, I want to like talk to all MLB umpires that time. I was like, yeah, there's this one place in Petco Park in San Diego. It's like kept smelling very nice. Yeah. (laughs) It's like delicious kebabs right behind home plate. So the, the Padres, by the way, the entire time I was in San Diego, they sucked. They were the worst team. Um, for a little while, they were kind of relatively important because they had Jake Peavy and everyone was interested in what would happen to his career. But um, oh, yeah. everyone else on the team sucked. It, it was a yeah. joke. But they had the most beautiful stadium, mm-hmm. you know, right in downtown San Diego with like an amazing view. It was very easily accessible. It was the first stadium I've ever been to where parking was absolutely no problem. <laughs> And really uh, interesting. Yeah, because the city, remember, it was all the, the city parking all around it. And oh, then, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Right. But you try to park, uh, you know, near Fenway and it's like $800 and you need a mortgage. Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Petco Park. So they had, they had great, uh, they had a great schedule. Like you'd be there and like the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Cubs. And uh, I remember like Jason Hayward's first year when he was with the, with the, uh, with, with Pittsburgh. Like they all came yeah. to town. Right. And the games would be, yeah. you know, not the stands would not be full and you would go there and get the best seats at the house and walk in with great food. And it was really just a great experience. And it was so cheap. It was so cheap. I would spend 20 bucks to go to those games. Wow. You know, that sounds like heaven, honestly. Yeah. But like, do that like, at Yankee stadiums, like a $400 night. Yeah, exactly. Like, God forbid you have to like pay for parking because it's in the Bronx for some reason. And yeah. then go sit behind home plate and you need to like, I don't know, put it on the company card, maybe like that. That's just a nightmare. And you run into the same stuff here, actually. Like 
Dodger Stadium is a very interesting thing because some stadiums, like sometimes they're super, super cheap. And sometimes they're like every single celebrity is there and uh, nosebleeds go for like a thousand. Yeah. It just fluctuates between those two. I don't, I don't know. You just need to time it maybe. Yeah. So we went to, you know, to Petco Park with the uh, Padres, uh, Dodgers, Angels, Giants, uh-huh. uh, Oakland Mariners, Days. A little up north. Yeah, we went to the Mariners. Um, I just, I, I miss live sports. Uh, I just specifically yeah. live American sports because I've spent like a fortune going to like every major sports game and league that you can think of in the States. The one thing we didn't manage to do was go to spring training, which we wanted to do, but couldn't. I really, yeah. There was spring training. And then I don't think I've ever taken you to a basketball game. I've never been. So the, the only non-baseball sport that I've like live sport game that I've been to is an NFL one. Um, so as I as as funny as it is, like the one I went to back in September was Rams versus Cardinals, and it was at the new SoFi Stadium. Uh-huh. It's like the first game I ever went to was not only the stadium that the Super Bowl is being played in, but yeah, was one of the teams that ended up winning it. So yeah, that that was pretty cool. And I I I really want to start going to more NFL games. Surprisingly, NHL games. Have you been to any hockey games? Oh yeah, those are great. I love those a lot. NHL, I went to the last game I went to was Bruins versus Predators in 2016, I want to say. And that just devolved into a slugfest. So I think um, people go to games like their whole life to see some things that all happened at that game. So there was a fight, right. and then there was, which isn't that rare. And then there was the, the puck that went over the, uh, the glass. Oh, shit. And then what else happened? Um, Man, I, f- I remember just thinking like, because I went with uh, somebody I was working with at the time at the investment bank and he was like, uh, you see what just happened? Like, you know, I've been going to games all my life and I've never seen that happen all in the same game. <laughs> like, <laughs> Jeez. But I've been to hockey probably the least of of any of the other sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, baseball, I, a bazillion games. I went to a lot of basketball games and a lot of football games. Yeah, basketball games I'm trying to, definitely trying to go, go to more. But I was going to say, do you remember the the first um bench clearing brawl that happened yes <laughs> yes phillies that was fun yeah phillies and giants yeah and it was it was victorino shane victorino remember when oh was, yeah yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I remember i specifically remember it was shane victorino and i still remember seeing what's his name sergio romo yeah yeah uh wow. he just kind of came out of there and didn't know what to do exactly that was fun oh also fun fact like we used to actually go have tour at oh yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> remember that so yeah, so uh, okay, so for the Western listeners, like the the meal that you break your fast with during Ramadan, uh, we were actually in San Francisco for Ramadan that year, and we would go to the games, and it would get dark when we were at the game, so we would break fast basically in the stands. So we would have like a twenty dollar ballpark pizza <laughs> for the like garlic fries. Yeah, yeah, wash it down yeah. some like Giardelli hot chocolate. Yeah, oh, man. <laughs> that was the best part of the games in San Francisco because they started hot enough to give you a sunburn. I remember my forearms would get sunburned. And then yeah. at night you were freezing to death and like you had to buy like, like a $400 sweater from from the you know the store inside. And it was that right. extreme swing in temperature every game. I, I still remember though, it, it, what, what made it all worth it is like their equivalent of the seventh inning stretch. It was like the journey, that one journey yes. song. 
When the, when the lights, lights go down, down in the city. In the city. <laughs> By the way, Love we uh, we are way over time. <laughs> oh, that's that's a good point. We should we should do like a we should pivot this to a sports podcast. I think that's that's one thing that we should be doing. Yeah, what do we call that? Not venture bros. Um, let's see. Sport? No, not sports bros. That's kind of that's it's. Um, I don't know. Mo Jip, likes balls. Jib. <laughs> I was gonna say, jib, jib and toots. Jib and to- oh, by the way, f- final final point on this. Uh, uh-huh. Do you remember when we went to a Chicago White Sox game at U.S. Cellular Field in Chicago? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. two thousand eight. And you wound up on the ESPN highlight reel because you dove for a catch on the dugout. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that was, that was that was actually the first. I think it was the first ball that I ever caught, something like that. I, I don't think that, it was the first, but I remember I remember because we were standing right over the dugout, uh, yeah. over the Chicago dugout. And this is when Mark Burley was still a Chicago White Sox. And he threw it. Yeah. They, you know, they, they throw a couple into the stands every now and then. And back uh-huh. then you were like short and cute. So people actually gave you the time of day. And somebody <laughs> threw one at you and right. you went for the catch. And then you tripped or something and fell directly over the top of the dugout. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you wound up on ESPN. I actually think, yeah, I I have like a vague recollection of it, but because I, I remember like that that game was very interesting because I think it was one of the first games that I've been to since 2006 because I don't think like 2007 we just didn't end up going to the US and yeah, I, I it was just all adrenal like pure adrenaline that day. It was, yeah, it was I, I still remember that. U.S. cellular field yeah. back then it was it was really new like you know we we missed you know Comiskey Park yeah but yeah anyways True. what did Biden anyways. do <laughs> yeah I was gonna say I was trying to think of a transition into into what we we're actually gonna be talking about but it was just gonna be tough um but yeah pretty much let's let's do like a hard right turn into this topic but um so kind of obvious diving into it, given the last two episodes, it's kind of been obvious that our eyes have been really glued to what's been going on and, and like the situation with Ukraine and all the, you know, the invasion. And we've been covering a lot of the tech and business related aspects of it. Um, we've been able to like pick up a couple of things to those, from those headlines about businesses restricting like their work or their operations in those different countries. Yeah. Um, you know, all those different strategies that we ended up talking about from the business side to the innovation side to everything that was mentioned these previous two episodes. But there was one headline that I purposefully avoided. I kept seeing it over and over again, but I wanted to have a full-on discussion about it. And I knew that it should have been an an episode of its own. Um, So now that we have that episode, it's, it's, finally like time to kind of dive into it so so here's the headline more than 63 million dollars in crypto assets have been donated to the ukrainian government and an ngo providing support to the military so you know you never hear of a country asking for you know with the exception like war bonds and all that stuff but you've never seen something like this in the past like this is a type of headline that would be very quite difficult to find precedence for um What's very funny is that the, the, those $63 million aren't the only things that have been going to the to Ukraine to aid in their war effort. So, so many DAOs are being set up to aid Ukraine. And one notable one actually ended up receiving 500 ETH um, from OnlyFans out of everyone for some reason. Um, but um, 
So like it's it's very funny because at a time where gas is now worth half of my puny founder salary paycheck, we're seeing what people once called an internet fad kind of become a genuine source of funding for a small country fighting a global superpower. Yeah. That's that's such a weird timeline to to kind of be living in. And what makes it awesome isn't only the fact that it's like what's been going on with Ukraine, but what the US's response to it to it was, you know, those statistics are very alarming on an international level of people donating tens of if not hundreds of millions of dollars in pure crypto and digital currencies. By the way, when, when you say when you say gas, you're talking about filling up your car, not the uh, NFT transaction fees on OpenSea, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That the 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 oil type of gas, not not the, not the NFT right, yeah. ones, but honestly, both both are quite outrageous today. So it, the, you can use them interchangeably, kind of maybe. Um, but but what was very interesting, kind of going back to that Ukraine point, is that like the U.S. kind of batted an eye finally to this whole crypto situation. Was like, oh, um, this might be something that we should be caring about. So on Wednesday of, I mean, last Wednesday, um, President Biden. AKA what I like to call him post time travel, Captain America um, signed an executive order calling on federal agencies to explore the risks and benefits of cryptocurrencies. Did you so sign this executive what, order? No, no, I don't yeah. think I will. <laughs> that would have been, I would have loved that. I wish there was an email that somewhere. <laughs> if he, if he didn't end up signing it, Make um, it. I'll do it. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta up my meme game a little bit because I'm finally getting back into Twitter, you know, so I want to kind of, boost up my sh- my shit posting skills um yeah. <laughs> but but this eo basically ended like a really long fought battle between the white house and treasury secretary janet yellen and it finally took it one step closer to a clear proper regulatory framework that everyone in web3 has been waiting for regarding crypto i yeah. think we've brought this up in so many different episodes where a lot of the things that have been holding people back from getting into this brand new industry with you know dealing with cryptocurrencies and blockchains has been the fact that um, the rules around it are not clear. Right now, it's very much the Wild West, which is allowing for, you know, if you're an NFT marketplace, you're allowing for rug pulls. If you're a crypto, right. you're allowing for, if your blockchain goes down and on the, all that type of By stuff. By the way, so, speaking of, uh, you know, consequential uh, regulations, uh, the European Union is actually voting on potentially banning proof of work now, actually, right now. Uh, no. We can actually, you know what? Let me Let me pull it up. Yeah, let's do it. So, so are they like holding a vote on on banning that completely? Yeah, potentially, I mean that's what's the the, the language of the bill. But um, I can actually check my crypto wallet right now. Okay, yeah. no no wild swings. So I'm assuming it's good news. Okay. Um, oh shit! They they uh, they uh, got rid of the. Um, they stripped the language in the bill. It's gone. Oh, that sucks. Proof of work is the very energy intensive one that's been causing the whole like usage problems, right? Well, Power it's the problems. energy issue like with Bitcoin, but look, okay, look, the EU parliament has voted against a proposed ban on proof of work consensus mechanisms, another win for Bitcoin. But I, I figured Bitcoin would shoot up over that and it did not. So see Dogecoin maybe? No, Dogecoin is down hard. Down. Dogecoin is in the shit. Um, yeah. By the way, Oof. in the interest of transparency, I think we should tell our our uh, uh, our listeners. I actually sold out my Doge position. 
Oh yeah, you did because I had to. So Robinhood was like threatening right. to shut down my account because of like residency issues and shit, and uh, I had to sell it. That sucks. So I, I sold it, and a lot of it's in Bitcoin now. I just think Bitcoin is the better play long term. It's still the king of True. crypto, right? Um, yeah. That doesn't mean I'm I'm bearish on Doge. It's just I think you know if you're going to hold five to ten years, I have a better feeling of where Bitcoin is going to be as opposed to Doge. But yeah, this is. More we went off on a tangent. Anyways, we did. Um, but it's a crypto tangent. This entire episode's about crypto, so not, not too much of a tangent. And baseball. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so going back to this EO, um, what I kind of did was there's this like very helpful CNBC article that kind of dove into the different um, action points, if you will, of this EO, as well as the White House fact sheet that actually came from the Biden administration. And... Um, what, what I was thinking of doing, just to be very, very clear about it, is kind of walk through some of the main key areas that this EO addresses. Yeah. Um, EO, to kind be clear, of see, is executive order. Yeah, yeah, executive order. But yeah. it, it's, it's um, saying EO is, is uh, better, cleaner, I don't know. Um, yeah. But um, so, yeah, this, this EO basically focuses on a few key areas that help set the groundwork for what some might say is mainstream adoption, or at least acknowledgement of cryptocurrencies in everyday life. So without further ado, let's like dive right into all the bullet points that were in that White House fact sheet, right? right. So the very first one um, basically calls to protect US consumers, investors, and businesses, and calls for that to happen by tapping the treasury to develop policy recommendations to address the implications of this growing market and that growth's effect on all of its players. So that's kind of the a, a paraphrased version of what, what the actual fact sheet says. But, you know, personal opinions of it is I'm, I'm not really sure how helpful it'll be to tap a department of the government that was opposing this to make sure there's nothing in the sector that will harm investors. I mean, there's a reason they opposed it in the first place. And that harm is probably a very, very good reason of why, right? Uh, okay. Interestingly enough, they've kind of launched a resource online for people to learn more about Bitcoin and crypto since then. Uh, they've tweeted it out, which I think is interesting. But you know, I we poke fun at the government quite a bit. But I think at at the very least, someone over there is likely to understand that this is not something that you can stop. Uh, mm -hmm. You are not going to legislate Bitcoin away any more than you're going to legislate away the wind. So, <laughs> like you know, yeah. Yeah, I think I think the one thing that comes to mind is like the with with any policy drafting of a new industry or a new new type of technology, like how awesome would it would would it have been if they'd worked with you know existing VCs that invest purely in the Web three industry? Because I feel like that you know the the A sixteen Zs like the Coinbase's policy department, um, FTX, Crypto dot com. I feel like all of those are not only experts in their fields, but they're also, you know, pretty much the people running the whole the whole Web three industry. Then again, so, we don't know what discussions they've held because people of that size most definitely have lobbyists who are talking to lawmakers all the time, and obviously they don't yeah. publicly disclose what's been said and when. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that I think that's that's the point that I've been trying to get to. Of like, you know, I really hope this basically came from the Web three industry with the help of the government and not really the government saying we know what's right and we've done our research and here's everything. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so first one's first, first kind of call to action is very, very 
normal with anything new. Let's just make sure that everyone involved in it can cover their ass because there's no more stimmies going out. And that's very, very painful. Right. Um, anyways, second call to action um, is to protect U.S. and global financial stability and mitigate systemic risk. Right. And the, the little blurb that they added to it is by encouraging the Financial Stability Oversight Council to develop policy recommendations, again, um, for any unforeseen risks and cl close any regulatory gaps. So once more, personal opinion being put in here, I really don't mean to sound like the maxi in this situation, but aren't cryptocurrencies helping with financial stability while all, all other fiat currencies hit record high inflation rates right now? I mean... Um Yes and no. I wouldn't call what that financial stability. When people say financial stability, they're talking about the financial infrastructure of, you know, Wall Street. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the existence and operation of the banks and any other actor in the financial market. Um, right. What you're talking about is is like monetary stability, which is a function of monetary policy. In other words, you know, pre you know, preserving the value of the dollar or whatever other currency, or at least having some kind of controlled devaluation over time in the form of inflation. What I think they're worried about is financial contagion. That's the financial stability contagion. they're talking about. <clears throat> yeah, contagion as in, so you remember the movie, The Big Short, right? Oh, yeah. Favorites. I mean, we've only watched it together 34 times, but you know, the scene where, where Jared pulls out one too many Jenga blocks and then trying to, you know, he's trying to make his point about the fragility of the housing markets. And then he pulls out one too many and the whole thing tips over, falls apart. And, you know, that's, that's contagion. That's right. what contagion is. It's this chaos theory type thing that allows for one small event to somehow, somewhere snowball into a much larger event that threatens the entire system. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to. So what they're worried about there, really, at least in my opinion, is uh, they want to be sure that some bizarro out of left field event would not cause through chaos theory, this massive snowball effect. Um, but how that would come to be is kind of in question, because I'm not sure how some things would happen with, say, Bitcoin, as opposed to the way they function with fiat paper currencies. So Bitcoin, by definition, you know, cannot be created out of thin air. So things like fractional reserve banking and other inflationary practices aren't even possible. Um, but that being said, you could have a Bitcoin and then have the fiat world create some kind of derivative instrument on the Bitcoin and then leverage that up 30, 50, 90 times, like hap what happened in 2000. Um, like CDOs and synthetic CDOs right, yeah, and all that. Right, you know, so you can create all of that on top of a crypto asset uh, and still end up generating the same financial risk for the holders of those assets. Um, I mean, I think, I think the interesting part is like they, that has been attempted before in the past, because wasn't there like multiple applications for a Bitcoin ETF or any sort of crypto ETF that's been shot down by the, uh, I yeah. think it's the SEC. Yeah. Right? By the SEC or by NASDAQ sometimes. Uh, the other thing is, you know, in terms of uh, financial stability, so in 2008, like that called the events then called into question the financial stability of a lot of the banks. And a lot of the banks also disappeared. Like, you know, Washington Mutual, Wachovia, these banks that have been around for like a million years, gone, vanished. Right. Um, imagine Coinbase grows to the size of JP Morgan and basically functions like people's, you know, custodian checking account, so to speak, of their Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. You'll remember a little while ago, somebody on Twitter was trying to alert Coinbase 
um, of a vulnerability that they said was far too sensitive to submit through hacker one and wait and it needed to be dealt with immediately and this uh, somehow got elevated to brian armstrong who actually responded um, and checked it out and eventually paid out two hundred fifty thousand dollars to this person who flagged the uh, vulnerability um, basically this vulnerability allowed hackers to in theory be able to wipe out your accounts on coinbase and really? to do it to everyone and to steal accounts through, I mean, and to steal assets directly out of their hot wallet, which is their connected wallet for immediate transfers. Um, wow. On a large enough scale, if that were to happen to, to Coinbase and somebody wipes all the Bitcoin off of Coinbase, you know, you can make the argument that somehow they would stand to collapse like a lot of the banks in 2008. And that would be something that would create real financial contagion. Right. Um, yeah. That, that. It's, it's a very interesting part where it's like, you know, the 2008 crisis basically came into play because of all those, those, those instruments and derivatives mm -hmm. that, that inflated what was actually just a normal amount of money being traded or like normal mortgages. Mm -hmm. But with Coinbase, it's like, yeah, with, with this new era or like maybe the next financial crisis that happens that is on the 2008 level, it might just be a software bug, which is very, very concerning to think about. Yeah, can you imagine? Like, I mean, people have died of software bugs. So true. Why can't it tear down finance? Like the Boeing yeah. 737 Max, like that was a software bug. Right. That caused it to nosedive. Um, there are instances in the military where missile defense systems did not work because of a software bug. Wow. Yeah, that happened in yeah, I the 90s. Uh I remember that. Yeah, I remember the the missile defense systems was a very big one, but I do remember rockets too. Yeah. Um, you know, ones that were just delivering satellites because so it was something as simple as like instead of eight bits, instead of dealing with sixteen bits, the hardware of the rocket actually worked in eight bits, and they tried to fit a sixteen bit word in there. Mm -hmm. Um, and and what ended up happening was, um, you know, the rocket thought it was going upside down, it literally just flipped and exploded. Yeah, the, the fact that something like that can happen based off of such a tiny assumption can mean like if Coinbase becomes a, a BOFA level organization where, you know, everyone's dealing with crypto, everyone has their wallet and, and or a custodial wallet, like wallet, basically, mm -hmm. where, yeah, if I can get into that wallet somehow, or if I can trick Coinbase into thinking this, this account wants to sell all of its Bitcoin, um, that's... That's concerning, and I and I really hope like that's the type of stuff that the what's their name the Financial Stability Oversight Council is taking into account with, with these like policy recommendations. But so you, maybe you end up with like instead of liquidity standards, they're like cybersecurity standards for custodial, uh, you know, holders. Of that might be it. I mean, I, I think it, like the the one thing that comes to mind when you think standards in in software and like payments or finance is like the thing that I think I've mentioned before a little bit which was the um, PCI compliance. But yeah, there, there might need to be a new type of compliance or license that says, if I'm dealing with digital assets, my stuff's not going to be wiped. Right. But um, I think, I think that, so there is a risk of that that's involved, but there's also the other risk, which is even if you build a platform that's secure enough, you're still going to have bad actors on that platform. And that's actually what the third thing addresses um, which again, just quoting quoting ish the 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 White House fact sheet here um, is to mitigate the illicit finance and national security risks posed by the illicit use of digital assets. Um, and what they said that what they said by that is um, 
they're directing all quote unquote relevant US government agencies to address this topic. I mean, this was kind of the first thing that came to mind once the whole crypto thing started popping up on my timeline after like almost two years ago. Um, you know, all those rug pulls, the shitcoin scams, the pump and dump schemes for one. And then the fact that today sanctioned Russians can interact with Bitcoin to avoid said sanctions um, are the two biggest concerns of having a monetary system that's truly free and decentralized. I mean, it's great because it levels the playing field and allows everyone the same barrier of entry. But at the same time, you're also allowing people to kind of work around different loopholes. And it's just very hard to moderate as a system. Um, so I'd be very curious to see how, you know, how a centralized authority, i.e. the government, can mitigate issues that are happening on a decentralized platform. Because that feels, it, it sounds counterintuitive just looking at it from the surface. Yeah. Well, I mean, for starters, people in the illicit finance space, you know, uh-huh. they um, they seem to be doing okay with the legacy banking system. The potential downsides of technology, mm-hmm. honestly, they're not a reason to ban technology as the downsides are more than offset by the potential upside. Um, mm-hmm. I just think that eventually we're going to get to a point where the government starts putting commercial banking-like restrictions on custodial uh, crypto accounts, like the things you Mm -hmm. find on Coinbase or Binance or whatever. But once again, not your keys, not your crypto. And if you move it to your own wallet, then none of that applies. So something to be mindful of. And and, um, yeah. And also, yeah. Another thing is I remember wanting to buy Bitcoin in Kuwait in 2012. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Bitcoin quit in 2012. If you wanted to buy it, there was literally a number of a dude who you would meet somewhere and give him cash and he would send you Bitcoin <laughs> to your wallet. Literally. That was the way you did it in Kuwait back then. Um, also in a lot of places back then. <laughs> so, wow. and, and the way you can, you know, get cash for your Bitcoin um, without generating, you know, the trail or the electronic paper trail on an exchange or something is to find someone who will buy it for cash. And right. usually they take quite a cut, like, you know, 10% or something, just that, you know, that's the cost of service if you want to keep it quiet. And you literally transfer from wallet to wallet in person and, and they would hand over cash. So if people are going to keep doing that, there is literally no way to enforce anything. You can't possibly control that unless you literally ban cash. So yeah, that's not it, happening anytime soon. Yeah. Whereas, you know, people, people do that. True. I mean, I think, I think the very interesting thing is like to, to, to stress or put a little bit of, of, of emphasis on one of the points that you said, not your keys, not your crypto. Yeah. Um, I think that speaking about it purely from a user perspective, I think not your key, not your keys, not your crypto would be much more of a widely adopted thing if it wasn't for the fact that setting up a wallet in the first place is just very, very difficult. I think like the, the UI setting up a wallet slash- is extremely easy. What are you talking about? You just download your trust wallet and start it and you get your, uh, your seed phrase and there you are, you have a wallet. Yeah. But, but, but I feel like, you know, it take, you know, step as like stepping aside from someone who's familiar with the web three space and someone who's even familiar with tech in general. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if you take someone, like if you, if you go to a, you know, what's someone who like has never touched tech or cryptocurrencies in the past, say a, like if you traveled back in time and went to a wood shop, like, and went to the guy in there and like, Hey, 
set up a crypto wallet you know like i think i think it'll be very difficult for them to understand of like there's different blockchains and then there's different addresses and those different addresses you can use to either send or receive specific coins on the different blockchains and like yeah. even i kind of struggle with the whole idea of like dexes and daps and like what that means in order to transfer one yeah but you're stupid but for, for normal people i mean they can <laughs> they <laughs> they can google it i mean i get it yes there's a learning curve in terms of just generally understanding how this all works and comes together but in terms uh -huh. of setting up a wallet once you understand that it's it's literally easier than setting up a coinbase account because nobody's checking like your your passport and your bank account number and kyc sure. and all that crap it's, it, it, I think it's very simple. I think once people understand the basics of blockchains and crypto, yeah. suddenly setting up a wallet becomes a, a very easy task. And I mean, I use Trust Wallet, which is super simple mm -hmm. and has all the goods. Um, I yeah. love Trust Wallet, but um, the, yeah, I mean, Trust there's, there's 200 great. providers out there. We are not sponsored by Trust Wallet, but there's like 500 different providers yeah. out there and they all function effectively the same way. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think the one thing to say about that is like, yeah if 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 someone were to robin hood eyes setting up a crypto wallet it's just like oh tap this button send these things over that's it you're good and and then like don't even worry about your seed phrases or your addresses or anything like that it's just like well strike do is doing that today? for bitcoin on the lightning um on the lightning network and that actually works monumentally okay. well and um who's who's doing that strike strike Strike. S T R I K E. Oh, I see. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, once I think once those become widely adopted, then then like your everyday stupid person, i.e., me, can can uh, basically <laughs> deal with that type of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but here's the thing: in order in order for someone to build that type of product. I like I don't know where Trust Wallet is based in terms of like country. Um, doesn't matter really because everyone anyone can set it up. But the the one thing that comes to mind when you think of that type of stuff is like okay now now the U.S. government's paying attention to Web three. Um, how and like other countries or other possible contenders for Web three industry leaders are shooting themselves in the foot right now because they're either banning it or they're cracking down on it or they're limiting it in some way basically so this this actually is kind of a nice transition into the fourth um call to action in this eo which is basically and it's honestly the most exciting one in my opinion based off of pretty much every single episode that we've ever done in the past but it's to promote u.s leadership in technology and economic competitiveness to reinforce U.S. leadership in the global financial system. And what it does by that is by calling on the Department of Commerce to develop a framework to drive this competitiveness and leadership in the leveraging of digital asset technologies. So every single time I say founders are a bit hesitant to get into the Web3 space because they don't know what the legal framework is, or there's a very, it's very hazy, or it's like not clear or vague. Um, with this specific call to action, this might really be the framework that will start the Web3 wave. I know there is a wave kind of going on right now, but all those risk-averse founders waiting on the rules to be set will now have literally zero excuse to hop in there and start building. And it's going to honestly lead to some pretty cool shit very, very close, like very in, in the near future, pretty much. You know, the, the other side of this is that um, large institutions that have been afraid to jump into crypto because of the regulatory gray zones, you know, all of a sudden, I think they're going to jump in like it's the S&P 500 in March 
2009. True. You know, like, okay, it's the bottom. Everything's legal now. Let's, <sighs> let's jump in. Why not? You know, we got to take a position because enormous institutions, even devoting like a quarter of a percent of their portfolio to crypto would be an enormous amount of cash inflow. It would be huge. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be, I, I definitely see the, the, you know, the appeal of like mainstream adoption, especially if you've been in the crypto community since the very, very beginnings is very, very nice. But the fifth call to action is actually it's it's hopefully something that I wish can be figured out, if that makes any sense. So it's like it's it's very difficult to put into words. But basically, if I was in the web three industry or like the, the crypto industry, and I've been tracking Bitcoin ever since it came out in 2009, and I was part of the cypherpunks original community, right? And I saw that now banks and corporations who were who caused the problem that we're trying to fix getting into the thing that I so dearly love and want to protect. The first thing that comes to mind is like, oh shit, if they get into this and they create their own services around it, it just might not be as equitable or they might take those old banking traditions of inequality or inequitability, maybe is the right word. I don't know. Um, to like, I might carry those into the web three industry and the crypto industry where now you're going to start noticing that people have access to specific cryptocurrencies and others don't. Um, so the, what the fifth call to action kind of says is promote equitable access to safe and affordable financial services. Um, now, I know it's very easy to think, well, no shit. I mean, you can't get more equitable than a decentralized system where anyone can set up a wallet and get in, right? Yeah. Also, um, countries that have adopted it as legal tender, like El Salvador, by the way, also have like basically a state-sanctioned wallet. So it is right. a wallet. You are in control of your own keys so that the state does not have direct insight into what you are doing. Um, however, you know it, it guarantees a minimum amount of service with minimum functionalities that are available to everyone. So other people can offer more services with more bells and whistles and whatever it may be, but the government will always make sure that anyone who wants access to a wallet that is safe as it's you know code vetted, for example, and knows you're not being monitored, um, and can you know perform the basic functions of a wallet, send and receive cash, that kind of a thing, basic security functions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's that's a good example of good state regulation that protects the interests of, of uh, minorities, really, and people with uh, you know lower income by making sure that at the very least their financial services are secure. Yeah, and I think I, I think like the 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 very interesting part about this specifically is that. In order for there to be a lot of those equitable opportunities, there needs to be a lot of services out in the market so that not only so that people can have the freedom to choose which one works for them or which one is the safest for their risk threshold, maybe or risk tolerance when it comes to this type of stuff. But it's even like having all those industries and having all the services offered by so many companies in this single industry is also going to give the government a sense of what works and what doesn't, or what's considered equitable and what's not. Because I think if you carry those definitions over from any previous industry, it just ends up, you know, you'll run into the same issues that any other industry has run into. And you'll turn into, you know, you have these premium services only for a specific type of income. And then you have these other services that are crappy and shady and predatory, and they only work for low-income people. And it's like, you know, you, you start falling into the 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 web three industry starts falling into or molding into the shape of the traditional banking industry. Um, so what actually makes me happy or makes at least the, the CTO in me a little happy is actually the sixth call to action, which is 
Um, it's to support technological advances and ensure responsible development and use of digital assets. So I am a sucker when it comes to open collaboration and especially for building better government. And, you know, with with my startup abstract, that's exactly what we're trying to do. And we're trying to announce a lot of collaborations and partnerships. And it's basically something that's core to the abstract engineering vision and goals in order to build better systems, not only for government, but for people to interact with government even better and people who didn't even know that they needed to interact with government. So hearing that the US government's supporting this and, and will be directed to those who want to sit down build and make these currencies safe make these currencies safer and these services safer for us all is a very green flag but yeah. there's definitely a threshold to keep in mind of like what type of intervention you're looking for you know we're, we're focusing quite a bit on on you know currencies and finance and not so much on other use cases of things like nfts so mm-hmm. this is interesting mila kunis um you know 70s show megan family guy Mila Kunis recently announced that she's producing a new show where NFTs held by the public, by the viewers, can be used to vote on the direction of the show. Isn't that cool? Oh, that's awesome. That's Yeah, uh, yeah. so before. imagine if the entertainment industry is about to get a whole lot more interactive because of things like NFTs. I mean, why can't the government? I think the True. first version of this was people calling in to vote on their favorite, um, like, um, what, what was that show called with Simon Cowell? American Idol. Uh, American American Idol. Yeah, yeah. Remember American Idol? Like the, people could call in and vote for their favorite uh, winner or whatever it was, and that interactive TV show created insane engagement, and right. people were just obsessed with that show for a long time. Now imagine any show being able to harness that, right? True. So if the entertainment industry can can get a whole lot more interactive, the government can do the same. And imagine a municipality where people can like quickly vote on their phone to let the mayor know that they demand like a vast improvement in their local services or a school, or they all want like a new subway line extension in whatever part of the city, um, mm-hmm. you know, governments, you know, they need to operate on the basis of a lot of studies and a lot of assumptions that could, you know, benefit greatly from being able to know in real time what the citizens want and citizens owning a wallet um, where they had access to an NFT um, as a citizen, as a proven resident of a certain city, that NFT allows you to vote on certain things uh, and make it clear to city leadership that you know the people want something to function in a certain way. That could be enormously useful because it's not a guessing game for people at the top anymore. They're not relying on studies. They're relying on direct polls of people that can be done very quickly and do not require you know massive electoral commissions and rollouts and that kind of a thing. True. Yeah, I wonder. I'd be very curious to see how, like, the gov tech industry or even the civic tech industry can help here, and how they can collaborate with engineers that exist in government right now yeah. to build systems that allow that. I mean, imagine if the and this is a, quite a pipe dream, but imagine if like the census can be filled like that, where it's like direct feedback from everyone based off of their data, yeah. and and you know that that would make things way more efficient. I mean, if you need, you'll need to build a system scalable enough such that. The entire population of the U.S. can access it immediately, so that that will be an engineering challenge. But what if your phone number was an NFT, or that? Yeah, if, right. Kind of like your ENS. Yeah, that that is true. If if your phone number was an NFT, and like, first of all, T-Mobile can <laughs> would make much more revenue than they are right now, maybe. Yeah, um, and just like get a small cut of it as being exchanged and sold. And actually. Yeah, I kind of do see the the effect of that. I mean, but then again, you fall into the rabbit hole of like you can literally NFT anything, anything and everything in the world. Yeah. Also, there are ways that become very, very annoying. 
you know, I, I, I lived in New Hampshire, by the way, in 2012, when the election was happening. Uh-huh. And uh, every other day, someone would call with like an automated poll because it was a swing state and one of the first to vote in, oh, in the primaries true. and stuff. It was, dude, it was, it was insane. It was endless, <laughs> would not shut up. Interesting. Yeah. I think I get those. I get like, yeah, California is just super, super blue. I, I don't, I don't really get it. No, nobody bothers polling California. We know what's going to happen in California, but you know, New Hampshire, yeah. which has gone blue for most of the elections in the last 20 years is still considered a swing right. state because it's always close. True. Um, true. Anyways, no tangents moving on. <laughs> no tangents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we, we did the the mini baseball podcast earlier, so we, we right, got yeah. to stick to the topic. Um, but uh, so finally, this is the last call to action in the White House fact sheet and the EO that Biden signed on Wednesday. But this is very surprising. It is to explore a U.S. central bank digital currency or, um, you know, to keep it short, CBDC for central bank digital currency. Um, I I don't know how I feel about this. And I'm not saying this in a bad or a good way, but I genuinely do not know what that means. So, you know, China's been leading the push with their leaning into CBDCs and the Fed's already has already been working on a version of one. So my assumption is that Biden's just asking the Fed to hurry up with it, which to clarify is not him saying that CBDC will be launched anytime soon. But where um, where did you hear that the Fed was working on one? I think this was in that that CNBC article that I mentioned of um I feel like that would be yeah, major the, news. Because here's here's the here's the quote from that article. Um the Federal Reserve last year began work on exploring the potential issuance of a digital dollar. The central bank released a long-awaited report detailing the pros and cons of such virtual money, but didn't take a position yet on whether it thinks the U.S. should issue one. So that's okay. what that CNBC article says. Uh, okay. Look, when it, when it comes to this point, when it comes to CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, like this is where I turn like extremely vehemently anti-crypto. Oh, interesting. You know, look, this is... This is how governments and central banks will have the ability to do some like truly 1984 dystopian shit with people's money and just eviscerate any concept of financial privacy or right of self-determination. I, I think it's obscene. I mean, imagine the central bank wanting to put in place like a negative interest rate and they do it in the form of disappearing cash that vanishes if you don't spend it by a particular amount of time. You know, imagine there's like a negative, a negative two percent interest rate, and the way it's enforced is that your bank account will basically vanish two percent of its contents uh, once a month or whatever. You know, in, in an effort to get you to concerned. spend cash. To me, right. that's that. I mean, it would not be impossible under a CBDC. Like, imagine your personal account is like a crypto address created for you by the government, and they can track every single one of your transactions. That would be, yeah, that would give you like 1984 level. Yeah. Imagine the government can freeze all of your transactions by freezing that one account. And they could even potentially reverse them to prevent you from freely spending on whatever, you know, consumption you want or investments you want to make. Right. And that would, that would, yeah. I think uh, the concerning thing about that is like, it beats the purpose again of crypto and of something that's decentralized. Yeah, I mean, it's completely against the spirit of Bitcoin, which was, I mean, the whole point was to get government to stop bastardizing our currencies, right? I mean, imagine the government being able to like retroactively enact a tax that withdraws funds from your account without the need to legislate it, which is that's basically what negative interest rates are. Like, you know, inflation is, I mean, it's an unlegislated tax and they could do it directly by directly manipulating the money supply now in your account, right? Mm Mm-hmm. 
as opposed to playing with federal open uh, the open market operations and and all that. Um, I just think giving the government absolute control of the financial freedom of citizens is is literally the opposite of the purpose of Bitcoin, like you said. And a central bank digital currency, it needs to be reined in with proper legislation. Right. But even then, I believe any future government would be just too tempted to disregard those laws by just changing a few lines of code. And I think the best thing to do is just to, to ban the development and deployment of a CBDC in the first place. And I've seen a couple of proposals on on this from a couple of Republican uh, House representatives, which is definitely a step right. in the right direction. But there can be absolutely no government controlled money that can be controlled down to its most basic forms in your pocket. Right. I do. I do think that that is concerning. However, my question would be: Do you think that there is aspects of crypto that can be adopted into current monetary systems that will make it better? Yeah. Yeah. No, Not adopting look, a full. There's. There's. Currency. Yeah, I mean, there's already a place on the blockchain for existing currencies. Uh, take oh. Celo, for example. Like, you know, Celo is a is a mobile first um, blockchain that you know is built on on well, built for fintech, really. And you remember, we remember we had the guy from Celo. We had uh, Jason Rodriguez on the show. Oh, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this was a couple of months ago, I think. Um, so, so you know, in, in that case, the government can kind of put in regulation for stablecoin providers. Who are required to back their stablecoin issuances with uh, either uh, you know a straight dollar amount or euros or yen or whatever, um, right. you know straight fiat currency backing or highly liquid treasuries, like if you want to issue right. stablecoins against U.S. treasuries, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes sense because then you have the fiat currency that you want to interact in, but you have all the benefits of its presence on a blockchain. But at the same right. time, it's not the government or the central bank in control of it with direct ability to monitor to, to to manipulate you know financial freedom at its most basic level. So to me, yeah. I don't know the central bank digital currency aspect. I can see why they're pushing for it in China because China is China and they're going to do some Chinese Communist Party type stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I really see no place for it in any kind of of developed nation. I think it's just, it's too dystopian. What it, what can be done with it is just horrifying and it needs to be deleted. I, I, I kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of on the same page with you on that. I, th- I do think that, you know, the, the, you know, it, it's always, it's always easy to get lost in the what ifs of something new and then end up banning it out of fear that something's going to happen. But these are the, this specifically is one of the few instances where the what ifs and like the negatives or the red flags about this being introduced are just way too loud and way too prominent to be ignored yeah um even for anyone who's like somewhat you know if 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 you a vc who's very used to risk and me a founder who's also very used to risk are saying that this is very very risky there's got to be an issue with it um it's yeah, more I than do, just it, risky but you know risk as a vc or as an investor in general in this space, if you're an angel, for example, your risk should be capped at one one x your uh, your capital. You know, you right. can write a check for a hundred thousand dollars into a seed stage company, and it could go under, and it costs you a maximum of a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, the way I see this, even though it's it's difficult to like quantify it in monetary terms, the potential losses compared to the gains of the presence of a CBDC are catastrophic. You're uh-huh. talking about the loss of basic financial freedom. Literally, I mean, yeah. that is not something to risk just to get you know faster settlement times on dollar payments provided by the government. True, 
Yeah, I do. I see how like the existing system can be improved or enhanced with something like, you know, a blockchain or something like that, kind of like what you mentioned. But yeah, complete control just beats the entire purpose of this thing. I mean, it's like using, you know, it, it, it's like you're, you're, what's the best way to put it? I'm, I'm going it's to like use a line from Robin Williams. Okay. Um, he was talking about uh, Michael Jackson taking propofol to, to sleep, the thing that ultimately killed him, 2009. Okay. Um, you know, he, he said taking propofol to sleep is like doing chemo because you're tired of shaving your head. <laughs> That's dark, but I see it. Like the risk reward is just obscene, even though, yes, technically you are accomplishing your goals. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that's it. Uh, It's it's, it's, as dark as it is. That's a very good way to put it because that's exactly what it is. Like you, you are, you know, it's something very obscene and something way too much. Mm -hmm. It does what it needs to do, but there's so many other ways to even make it better. Yeah. But it's um, just, it's overkill. I I really don't see the need for it. I do not see the need I'd be for very, it. I'd be very curious to see what like the, the general consensus among the Web3 industry is going to be with this type of stuff. And whether, you know, if they're excited about everything else that we've mentioned, but have a big, big issue with this, what sort of um, advocacy is going to be done? What sort of lobbying is going to be done? You know, th- this is all like stuff that's kind of in my wheelhouse because it's stuff that I deal with on a daily basis. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, that that's... Those those are all the things that were in that EO, and to see, you know, last last sort of like conclusion or concluding thoughts, I guess, is to see a nation as large as the U.S. kind of lean into this new tech and place urgency on understanding and developing it. Really makes me happy, not only as a founder but as a builder too. Immense resources are basically going to need to go into this to make these coins like currencies for the people, and I'd be curious to see how it involves the next the existing Web three community. Um, but it's just very, very exciting to see that people are leaning into it with that one exception of a CBDC basically turning into a 1984 scenario. Yeah. But generally speaking, I'm pretty excited about the CEO. It's it's a very it's it's a nod from a very big government that this thing is here to stay. I think what may end up happening is the same thing we've seen with so many other like, you know, fintech things, which is basically it's a libertarians versus the world scenario. Mm-hmm. Um where part of the community is kind of for government involvement and the other part is absolutely for total and complete government um, or, or, or an absolute divorce from government control. And then you're going to find a whole bunch of opinions kind of scattered somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. And right. we're, that's just going to be our steady state operating scenario for a long time. Um, the yeah, government has I made it, it clear that they are going to enter the crypto markets, whether we like it or not. Whether or not that happens with the CBDC, we don't know. But these debates will continue to rage forever. I I think so. But hey, that's that's uh that's what makes it fun, doesn't it? Yes. Also gives us something to talk about on the show. So true, true. That's not baseball. <laughs> right. It's not baseball. When does baseball it, come it back? It is not baseball. Um, I think so so spring training starts in like three days. That's mm-hmm. that's what I heard. And then um like I think opening days a little over twenty days away. But I've never, lost, I've like, never been series. to an opening day game. Me neither. Unfortunately, which annoys but me. No, greatly. it should be fun. Yeah, I, I really want to go to an opening. So, so my bucket list of baseball games to go to is definitely opening day, All Star Game, 
and then uh, World Series, or just honestly, any postseason game. You know, I had tickets to a Dodgers game once. It was for a, a game seven. And then it, it the the series was decided, I think, in five or six games, and I got my money back. So I was very disappointed. Damn. But I mean, I think what's more painful that you've told me in the past is how many perfect games you've missed. <laughs> the number of perfect games I missed. Okay. <laughs> so this is the tr- the true story. Okay. So in 2012, uh-huh. I was living in Seattle and then I moved to San Francisco. So in Seattle, I went to a lot of Mariners games. And uh, what was his name? Felix. Um, Felix Hernandez. Yeah, Felix Hernandez, King Felix, right? So I went uh-huh. to a Felix King Hernandez King. game and he pitched. Uh, it, it was a regular game. It was a game they won. And then the next time he was pitching uh, was his perfect game. And I had decided at the last second against going to that game. Yeah. Um, and then in San Francisco at that, before I moved, when I was still visiting our brother in Sunnyvale, um, I said, Hey, why don't, why don't we go to a game? And, uh, I think he was busy or something. So we again, decided against it. The night we were supposed to go, I went to the gym and I was just watching it on, um, um, I was just watching it on TV at the gym and Matt Cain pitches a perfect game. That's just painful. <laughs> I could have been someone who went to two perfect games. Two perfect games and a brawl and <laughs> Yeah, and a brawl. And but um, I do I do do you remember the almost perfect game or the almost no hitter when yes. you and I went to the um what was it? Uh uh SF Giants, Giants versus Rockies. Rockies. Yeah. Yes. It was uh, Madison Bumgarner. DJ LeMayhew, eighth inning. Ugh. God damn it. <laughs> Dude, I, I remember saying the word perfect. And then somebody like, you know, a couple seats down, looked at me very seriously and said, don't talk about it. Don't talk yeah, about yeah. it. There's, Which is a thing, yeah, by the you, way. You, yeah. You can't, you can't say it's a perfect game yeah, or, or even a no hitter until it's done. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, man, I just, I remember just thinking, so the weird thing is like, I was watching it on TV when Matt Cain did it. And uh-huh. I was wa- also watching it on TV, by the way, when Armando Galarraga, uh, when Jim Joyce oh, cost did. him, cost him a game. That's that's painful. He, f- yeah. Uh, what was it? The umpire, Jim Joyce, who, by the way, was like uh-huh. one of the most respected umpires in all of baseball for a long time. Um, oh, yeah. He, he called, he incorrectly called uh, a safe as an out, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, an out as a safe. Yeah. And um, yeah, he cost uh, Armando Galarraga the perfect game. And I remember yeah. it was the last out of the game. It was oh, Detroit yeah. Tigers versus who was it? Galarraga was a Tiger at the time. Like Indians, I think. Cleveland Indians, who are now the Guardians. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, wow. that was, man, I just the number Baseball of times cool. I have flirted with kind of sort of being at a perfect game is ridiculous. <laughs> it's is really, true. really ridiculous. That's very true. But hey, hopefully, hopefully. Next time you're in the U.S., we got to go to like, yeah. we, we, you just have to pick a two-week span and we have to like non-stop go to games. That's it. That's yes. all we need to do. Yeah. We should just drive yeah. up and down the coast going to games and also to Arizona. That'd be dope. I would love that a lot. That'd be fun. Very. Oh, Until wait, then, I, we'll I, got, about... I, got, I got one more for you. May 29th, yeah. 2010. Interesting. May 29th, okay. 2010. Um, I remember with my previous startup, we were actually shooting an ad for it and we were doing it on the LMU campus. And I remember while we were shooting, 
uh, I got a notification on my phone that said uh, Roy Halladay had just perf- pitched a perfect game. Oh, wow. And you were on the LMU campus. Yep. Damn. So th- there was a weird stretch in 2009, 10, 11, when like there was suddenly like 50 perfect games or some shit. Remember? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Like 2012 was the most active season in terms of like perfect games, no hitters that were thrown yeah. and all that type of stuff. Yeah. And I have yeah. not heard of a, a near perfect game in a while. I think the one we were at was probably the, the last one in a while. Madison Bumgarner. I think so. In San Francisco. Yeah. There, there were a lot of like yeah. no hitters that were thrown. Like I know Tim Linscomb, Homer Bailey, a um, couple of people here and there, but no, no, no one's like flirted with a perfect game just yet. You know, honestly, all this baseball talk just makes me nostalgic for the States. I, I, I've not been since the start of COVID, since you and I were stuck there for uh, yeah. for six months of COVID. But yeah. Wait, I, I have a I have a futon. You're always more than welcome to come visit. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome to sleep on it when I take the bed. Anyhow, I got to roll. <laughs> I got some work to do. Oh, yeah. Likewise. Before we miss another perfect game. All right. Beautiful. Peace.